At the very center and heart of our service each week, we come to the very heart of our faith, which is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we come to this gospel through both the word of God, which is the scriptures. We read it and preach from it so that we can see Jesus through it. And we come to the gospel through communion, which is a sacrament, a practice that Jesus left for us as his disciples. So we'll come to both now, word and sacrament. Dennis is going to come and read the scriptures for us, and then we'll preach from them together. We're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray together. Our God, we pause now to ask for your help, because as we consider your word, we need you to come and speak to us through your word. We need you to take this print off the page and apply it to our hearts and show us truth through it and change our lives by it. We confess that apart from your help, at best we will see them, but we will not really see them, or hear them, but not really hear them, and even try to believe them, but not really believe them. But we pray that you would have overcome all those things, press our wor your word onto our hearts. Be with my mouth as it speaks, Holy Spirit, I yield it to you and ask that it would say no more or no less than what you want to say to your people and that you would apply to your people very specifically, one by one, what you have for them this morning. We know you love us, and so it's with expectation that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In a book called The Disciplines of Grace by a man named Jerry Bridges, he tells the story of going into a doctor's office and sitting down and seeing a picture that captured his eye on the wall. He said he couldn't stop staring at it, and it was such a unique, original piece of artwork. The picture or the painting was of a man that was being sculpted, and the sculpture was completed to about mid-thigh and was shaping up to be this ripped, perfect, Greek godlike specimen of a man. He said what was most interesting about the picture, what was so original about it, was that the artist chose to put the hammer and the chisel in the hands of the sculpture. And so the one being sculpted was the one doing the sculpting. It was an original idea. It was unique, and so it captured his attention. And he couldn't stop thinking about what message was the artist trying to communicate? What was he trying to get across in this original artwork or this idea? He thought maybe it was a, a celebration of our rugged individualism, how our, our culture's fascination with being self-made, and we're self-made men and women, and we carve our own paths and create our own destinies and we shape our own lives and, and so perhaps it was a commentary on all of that. Bridges said that as he thought about it more deeply, 
He found in that picture a powerful depiction, though, of how we tend to live, particularly how we tend to view religion, and, and more specifically even, how many Christians approach the Christian life. I think he's dead on. I think if there's a sense in which if you are a person who considers themselves to be a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ and his teachings and his way of life, then there's a sense in which you are desperately trying to carve and cut and shape yourself. A way in which you're trying to change yourself and improve yourself and make yourself this Christ-like specimen. In a sense, you grab your spiritual hammers and your spiritual chisels and you're constantly chipping and carving and working on trying to get yourself to be this perfect Christ-like specimen. The only problem is, if you've been Christian for any time at all, you quickly realize that doesn't work. It never seems to work. You quickly begin to realize that no matter how much you try to change yourself, to sculpt yourself, to make yourself more holy, more godly, more like Jesus, it never seems to work. Tell me if you can relate to this, and I'll, I'll describe some of my own Christian experience. If you've known Jesus, you remember that first moment when you first come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it's like that moment is perfect. You wish you could almost freeze it in time and live out there forever because everything was right. You, you recognized how sinful you were. You had no hope. You were done trying to get right with God or any of that. You came to see that Jesus Christ loved you, forgave your sins. There was hope for your life, a new life. All your sins were gone, all the guilt removed, all the shame done away with. You had the hope of heaven. Your old life was done. You had a new life. Everything was right. And if you could, you'd live there again with that white-hot zeal for the Lord. There was nothing you wouldn't do for Jesus, nothing you didn't want more than Jesus. Everything was right. But then as time passes, sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, you begin to discover that though God has forgiven you for being a sinner, you still are one. And so then you struggle with this reality. It's like this Jekyll and Hyde thing within yourself. You know who you're supposed to be in Jesus, and you can't stop being who you are. The good you want to do, you don't do. The evil you don't want to do, this you keep doing. And you find this sort of battle beginning to commence. And that projects you into this cycle. You sin, and then you ask for forgiveness. And you promise to get better, and you try harder, and then you sin. And then you ask for forgiveness, and you promise to try harder, and you work harder, and then you sin, and that just keeps going. And soon enough, you're on this roller coaster of constant highs and lows with Jesus. And it's all based on how well you're doing, how good you're doing at staying away from sin, how good you're doing at doing what God requires, and you're on this roller coaster. And all the while, you keep hearing the Bible talk about this vision of godliness or holiness. The Bible addresses people like us as saints. And maybe that's true for some super-Christian out there, but for you, it all just seems like smoke and mirrors. Like, I'm never going to see that life or realize that life, or that's never going to be a part of my story. I'm going to always have this thing in me, and I'm going to struggle with it my whole life. Maybe it's true for someone out there, but how on earth is it true for me? And I don't know about you, but that leads to despair and struggle and you get frustrated and the whole thing seems like an exercise in futility. And you wonder, how do people change anyway? 
How do you become godly? How does someone become holy? If you've ever been there, I want you to hear first off this morning, you've got lots of company around you. Because I think every person in the room that knows Jesus Christ would nod their heads and go, me too. I've been there as well. And if you've ever asked those questions, I want to encourage you that those are very good questions. How do I change? How do I become godly? What does pursuing holiness actually look like? And can it be possible for me? Those are good questions. In fact, great questions. In fact, the questions that our passage wants us to deal with today. Those are the exact questions that the Apostle Paul has in mind as he's writing this part of 1 Timothy. He's trying to cast for us a vision of what it looks like to get after godliness. A vision for what it looks like to pursue holiness. So if any of that relates to you, you need to hear what he has to say. Listen again. Dennis just read it, but hear it with me. This is 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. This is what it says. He tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, and then listen. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, let me remind you of what we're doing in First Timothy so that that passage makes sense. We're basically working our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote to the church in Ephesus. And basically what we've been doing over these weeks is we're trying to learn from the mess that this young church plant had become so that we can prevent those messes from the life of our young church plant, right? The church at Ephesus that Paul was writing to was once a healthy, vibrant, gospel-believing, sinner-saving, city-engaging church. Now they're a mess. And so we're trying to gain wisdom from this letter to prevent those same messes from happening in our church. One of the areas that was a total mess in Ephesus was this whole issue of godliness, the Ephesians had no clue when it came to godliness. They were completely lost. In fact, if you look up in your Bible from 1 Timothy, the passage we're in in verses 6 and following, to the passage right before it in verses 1 through 5, something we talked about a few weeks ago. If you look at that passage, you'll see one of the Ephesian ways of trying to get at godliness. In verses 1 to 5, in the passage right before ours, the Ephesians had figured that the way to get after godliness was by abstaining from certain things. So if you remember, they had forbid people from getting married because they figured if we can stay away from sex, and then they forbid people from eating certain foods, if we could stay away from meat, if everyone could be a virgin vegan, then the whole place would be really holy, really godly. That's what we're after, virgin vegans, and everyone will be really impressive. Now, the details might sound odd to you, but I want you to know we all do that all the time. If you don't find righteousness in Jesus, you will invent categories to find righteousness in. If you don't take the righteousness that comes from Jesus, all of us figure there's certain things we can do or certain things we can make sure we don't do that set us above everyone else and make us better than everyone else. 
hear about the way people talk about who to vote for. And they're very passionate that if everyone would just see things the way they see them, they would be really right and everything would be fixed. I, I have a guy who walks down the block walking his dog every day in my house. And every time he sees me, he stops and gives me a four-minute political rant on why the government is wrong and who we should have voted for and what we should do. And he firmly believes if everybody in Philadelphia and in America thought as he thought, everyone would be right and this place would be perfect. It doesn't matter what the category. You ever talk to parents who think about how to educate their children? Talk to parents who are sold out about homeschooling versus those who are sold out about public schooling versus those who are sold out about private schooling. And everyone is positive that they're raising their kids right and everyone else is destroying their children, right? You talk to moms about breastfeeding. It's, it's odd the most weird things we could find righteousness about. There's moms who are for formula and moms who are for breastfeeding and, and the other definitely thinks that the other one is destroying their children. It, it could be a social issue. It could be any kind of thing. But we've all got this sense that if we do this, we will be right. And if we did this and everyone thought like we thought and valued what we value, then everyone would be right just like we are. If you don't find righteousness in Jesus, you'll find something to cling to that sets you above everyone else. That's all the Ephesians were doing. They just happened to pick two odd categories. But that's what they were doing as well. They were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to be godly, be holy. Now, if you read verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, it doesn't take Paul but two seconds before he just blows that idea out of the water. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, rather than this making you closer to the divine one, this actually makes you closer to the demons. It, it's a demonic idea to think that you could find some kind of righteousness apart from Jesus Christ you're not going to improve on Jesus' resume. And that's the resume that you have if you're a believer. If you substitute Jesus' resume for some other thing, that's not divine, that's demonic. That's not the way to get godly. In fact, Paul will chastise them and rebuke them and say to them, you are accepted by God, not by rejecting his gifts and his grace, but by receiving them with thanksgiving. For everything made by God is to be received with thanksgiving, the text says. So then, if the pursuit of godliness and holiness doesn't come by rejecting some things or abstaining from some things or, or seeking to establish your own righteousness, if it doesn't come from asceticism or legalism, words we talked about in the weeks prior, then how does someone pursue godliness? How does someone get after holiness? Well, Paul's going to tell us in this passage. He's going to tell us in verse 7 and 8, and before I read it to you, I want to say this. The metaphor that he employs, the image that he uses, is a bit odd at first. It's not exactly what you would imagine when you think about a holy person. Right? If I were to ask you to think about someone who's holy, really godly, maybe you think of a, a saint locked up in his study with a book open, a sort of golden halo sort of shining about his head. Maybe you think of a quiet chapel or a church or a tall cathedral or a towering steeple. Maybe you think of monks in monasteries or nuns in convents. Maybe you think of saintly people who are sort of removed from the world. Listen to what Paul thinks of when he thinks of the man or woman that's pursuing godliness. This is verse 7 and verse 8. 
It says this, Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Hear that phrase again. Rather train yourself for godliness. That word train is a, in the original language in which this letter was written was a word gymnos. And, and if you think about it, you can hear quickly that that's where we get the word gymnastics and gymnasium. In fact, literally the phrase was exercise yourself for godliness. So what Paul thinks about when he thinks about the man or woman that's pursuing godliness, he doesn't picture a quiet chapel so much as he pictures a noisy, sweaty gym. When he thinks of the man or woman that's getting after godliness, he doesn't think of a saint tucked away in his study. He thinks of a disciplined athlete that's running yet another sprint and lifting yet another weight and doing more push-ups and more crunches and more sit-ups. He thinks of someone who's breaking a sweat, whose muscles are burning, whose lungs are screaming for air. That's the image that comes to Paul's mind when he thinks of the Christian man or woman that's going to get after godliness. In fact, he draws this parallel between training for godliness and bodily training. Do you hear that? He says, it's almost as if he's saying, look, if you know anything about the world of an athlete, if you know anything about the consistent, vigorous, rigorous effort that it takes to be a disciplined athlete, if you know anything about the sweat that it will take for you to get your body in shape, then you have a clue of what it takes to get your soul in shape, the kind of vigor and rigor and discipline and effort that it's going to take to get your soul in shape. He draws the comparison between the two, but he's careful to say these two can't be pressed too far. It's not that one equals the other. In fact, he wants to separate and say, while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's saying, look, you could work hard on getting your body in shape and that'll last you some more years here. But pursuing godliness, training for godliness, blesses you here and for the life to come. It will bless you for all eternity. But the metaphor is a good one because he wants to use this word train to start to give us a picture of what it takes to be a man or woman that pursues godliness. In fact, he'll add some more verbs. In verse 7, you heard him say, rather train yourself for godliness. In verse 10, this is what it says. For to this end, we toil and strive. Now think of those verbs now. Toil, strive. Right, put these together. Training, toiling, striving. What it seems to be communicating is that Paul is saying that if you're going to pursue holiness, if you're going to pursue godliness, that that is going to mean some hard work for you. Right? I don't know about you. When you hear toiling, striving, training, all of that sounds exhausting. Right? It, it sounds like if you're going to get after this, this is going to require you to break a sweat. This is going to require you to have the same kind of disciplined, consistent, vigorous, rigorous life that an athlete might have. Toil. Strive. Train. 
Now, let me say this. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words associated with the idea of this is how you get at godliness, I have a huge problem with that. And it's not just because that sounds exhausting, and to do all that would mean a great deal of effort. But I have a huge problem with that because I had left that whole world before, right? I I have a huge problem with that because I'm a recovering legalist. If there was a support group here at Seven Mile Road, I would raise my hand to go, hi, my name is Ajay. I'm a recovering legalist. I've been clean for three days, right? Because that was my whole world. I left the world of sculpting myself. My entire Christian experience was of hammer and chisel trying to get right with God, trying to make sure that I was in his good favor by doing what he required. And I was riding that roller coaster my whole life. It was all about how I could juggle all the things God wanted me to juggle so that God would stay happy with me. And then I discovered grace. And that word became so precious, I named my daughter Hannah because it means grace. Everything became about grace. Grace that it wasn't about me or my works. It was about Jesus and his works. It wasn't about my performance. It was about Jesus' performance. It wasn't what I had done or not done. It was what Jesus had done and not done. He had done no sin. He had done righteousness. And all of those things were given to me through faith in his death and his resurrection. And so I was done with that whole world of toiling and striving and training. I had come to accept grace. And anything that even sniffed at legalism or working for your acceptance with God or toiling after the love of God seemed like something I had totally rejected. To be honest, I would have much rather that Timothy was told by Paul, Timothy, believe for godliness. Right? That makes sense to me. Timothy, preach the gospel to yourself for godliness. Timothy, trust for godliness. My favorite would have been, Timothy, wait patiently, do nothing, and godliness will come. Right? I would have loved that. But here, he says, train for godliness. To this end, we toil and strive. In some ways, I feel like an addict who's just recovering and whose buddies are now dragging him back to the bar and saying, don't worry, everything will be okay, it'll be fun. And I'm screaming with all my might, no, I I thought we were done with all of that. I would say to Paul, Paul, I thought it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and no more works. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, it is faith alone, but faith is never alone. It is faith alone, but faith is never alone. And I think the Apostle Paul would come to me, grab me by the shoulders and say, Ajay, son, you've got you've to hold on here. There's some basic things that you've got to get in place. Otherwise, you're going to see this whole thing wrong. I think the Apostle Paul, through this passage, would want to come to all of us and say through this text, listen, if you have come to think that grace is somehow opposed to diligent, disciplined effort, then you've got the whole thing wrong. If you see them as not hand in hand as they are, but rather antithetical to each other, opposite to each other, contrary to each other, then you're missing something. If you don't recognize that grace fuels and empowers 
training, toiling, and striving. You're missing something, I think the Apostle Paul would say. And you've got to get this right, because if you don't, otherwise every time the Bible tells you to do something, you're going to shout legalism where it's not there. And every time a preacher calls you to something, you're going to reject it and say, no, 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 I'm under grace now. I don't have any of those obligations. When you're called, as we called moms last week, to grab the scriptures and acquaint yourself with them so that you can acquaint your children with them. If you don't get this right, you're going to go, well, that doesn't really apply because I'm under grace. And it's all grace all the time. And I think the Apostle Paul wants to come to us and say to us, you've got to get this right. You've got to get this whole world of what pursuing holiness or godliness is about. And Paul would tell us in the scriptures, listen, this whole world is actually a world called sanctification. That's what this is. The whole process of becoming holy, of pursuing godliness, is sanctification. If you're familiar with Latin, any of you that study that, you'll hear the word sanctus in there. And sanctus is the word holy. And because, one preacher said, because we don't have the word holification, we have sanctification. But that's basically it is. It's the process of becoming holy of being sanctified, right? And, and what that is, is Jesus is holy and we are becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. He's holy, we're being holified. Holification, sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And here, I want to say three quick things about that world and then we'll quit. Sanctification is God's work. Sanctification is our work. And sanctification is gradual but inevitable work. Let me say that again. This whole process of becoming holy, of being godly, of training, toiling, striving, all of that is sanctification. And sanctification is first God's work. Second, it's our work. And third, it's gradual but inevitable work. The first, sanctification is God's work. Listen, the Bible is crystal clear that none of us can change ourselves. No matter how much you try, no matter how hard you strive, there's always a deeper layer that you can't get to. It's like a story from a book by C.S. Lewis. If you've ever read through the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a story in there called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And one of those has this boy named Eustace. And if you read the story, Eustace is this punk of a boy. He's particularly mischievous and and just a lousy kid. And in one place, he's in this magical place called Narnia. He comes across this great treasure that's being guarded by a dragon. Somehow he finds a way to weasel and sneak his way to try and grab all of it. And when he does, the story says that he turns into this dragon. He now goes to a lake and looks at his reflection in the pool. And to his horror, he's no longer a boy. He's this hideous, devil-like looking dragon. And so what he does now, full of scales and, and horns and, and talons and all, is he begins to claw at himself as hard and as vigorously as he can. And Lewis describes it as, as he's ripping into himself with these talons, hundreds and thousands of scales are falling to the ground. And eventually he rips so hard that he loses this outer shell, steps outside of it and sees what was the carcass of this dragon laying beside him. He runs with excitement to the pool and he looks down and to his dismay sees nothing's changed. It, it seems only that he's grown uglier and that there's a deeper layer beyond that one. 
And so he goes at it again, and he begins to rip and claw and try his best, and, and with great pain rips this off to lay yet another carcass by his side and goes back to the pool and sees he's hideous still and does this over and over and over and over again until he's exhausted and frustrated and done. And then in the story, if you've read C.S. Lewis's books, he's got this central figure called Aslan, this great lion. And Lewis was a Christian, and so Aslan was this Christ-like figure in his stories, a lion that died for people and rose again. It's this beautiful picture. And there comes Aslan to Eustace, now a dragon, and he requires that Eustace lay perfectly still. And laying there still, abandoned now, knowing he can't change himself, it says that he took his giant paw and ripped right in, cut deeper than anything Eustace had ever been able to do, almost till the boy describes it like he was going to die. So painful, so deep was that cut, and he begins to rip. The boy shrieks in pain because it hurt more than anything he had ever known. And then when he was done, laid by his side an uglier, darker, deeper carcass than anything he had ever seen before. Except this time, you know what happens. He goes to the pool, he looks, and he jumps in with delight because he had finally been transformed. He had been changed. And Lewis's point in that whole thing is that's sort of how you and I approach this thing. Right? Just, just go to Barnes & Noble and you'll see how many self-help books there are. What is that? That's clawing. That's, that's ripping. That's, that's trying desperately beyond all things to fix this part of my life, to sculpt that, to change this about me because you believe deep down in there is something you want to be. And the point of the scriptures is unless God gets involved, you have no hope. Unless you come to the place where you go, I cannot change myself. I can't fix myself. You've got to come and change me from the inside out. You've got to cut to the deepest layer of me and bring forth something new. We can't do this. But the great good news of the scriptures is sanctification is God's work. That's exactly what he wants to do. Hear me. Don't lose me for a second. That's exactly what he intends to do. Let me read you a verse from Romans 8. Listen to this verse, Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's that? Conformed to the image of his son. That's a phrase that says we're being conformed. We're becoming more like Jesus. That's sanctification. So this is, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be sanctified in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a mountain of stuff we could say in that verse. Here's just what I want you to get. What this verse is teaching is that from before the beginning, those whom he foreknew, that's before the earth was created, before the mountains were in place, before the stars were hung in the sky, God foreknew you who belong to him. I want you to think about that for a second. That before he threw the stars into the sky, in the eternal past mind of God, you were already there. And he not only thought of you and foreknew you, but he from then onwards had predestined you to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That is from eternity past, before the beginning, before there was a beginning, before there was time, 
before there were mountains or stars or skies, before there was anything, when there was just God, you were already in his mind and already your sanctification was in his mind. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is, your sanctification has been your eternal destiny from eternity past. That's been what God has been intending to do with your life from eternity past. Before the stars were thrown up, he knew he was going to make you like his son. That's been your destiny from before the beginning. And everything he has done since, sending his son, sending his spirit, has all been to accomplish that purpose of his from eternity past. From eternity to eternity, your sanctification has been on God's mind. The plan to make you like Jesus has been what he has been carefully getting done throughout all of history. The prophets were sent, and the Son was sent, and the Spirit was sent, all to accomplish this great purpose and plan. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit together have worked and are working for your sanctification. This is God's work. Now, if you get that, you might ask, great. Now, what's left for us to do? And that's the second part. Sanctification is God's work, but it's also your work. Sanctification is God's work, and at the same time, is our work. Listen, this is one of those beautiful tensions in the scriptures that are, that's a mystery to embrace that you can't puzzle out and figure out. Right? One of those paradoxes where two, two things are true at the same time without contradicting each other. Like if I were to say to you, is Jesus fully God or is he fully man? The answer is beautifully, yes, right? You know that before. He is not 50-50, sort of man, sort of God. He is 100% God and 100% man, and the two things are true at the same time without contradicting each other. That's mystery, that's beauty, that's, that's God. Is the Bible the word of God or the words of men? And the answer is beautifully yes. Not 50-50, not sort of, kind of, but 100% God's words and 100% the words of men. So likewise, is sanctification something God does or is it something you do? And the answer is beautifully yes. It's God's work. And it's our work. Listen to this quote by Jonathan Edwards, a, a theologian with a brain much bigger than ours. Here's how he said it. He said, we are not merely passive in it, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all, for that is what he produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. God does this. We do this. God does this miracle. As some pastors would say, we act out this miracle. God brings it into effect through our works that bring it to effect. Jonathan Edwards is just trying to say what Paul said in Philippians 2. Just hear this verse. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Work out your salvation. That, that phrase literally means bring it into effect. Bring it about. Work out your own salvation. For it is God who works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, sanctification is essentially us becoming what God has done in us. Becoming what we are in Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer, a pastor, says it this way. Sanctification is not self-reliant activity nor God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. It's not self-reliant activity. This is my doing. It's not God-dependent passivity. He'll do it so I got nothing to do. This is God-dependent effort. And in sanctification, what we are doing is we are becoming what God has made us. Right? If I could, if I could say it in one sentence, that's what it is. We're becoming who we are. Jesus made something new when you got saved. And now through the rest of your life, you're becoming who you are. It's like this. I've said before, I studied history once. And I remember in history learning that after the Civil War, if you went down to the South, you would actually find, after the war was done, after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, you would actually find black slaves still working on the plantations. Think of that. The war had been done. The document had been signed. Everything was done, and yet that's all they knew, and so you'd find many slaves still working on the plantations. And it's almost like you wish you could go up to one, grab them by the shoulders, look them in the eye, and say, what are you doing? Don't you know that a war was waged and blood was shed so you could be free? Why do you live like slaves when you've been set free? And in essence, what you'd be saying is, become now who you are. You're free, so Walk that freedom out. And that's what the scriptures are saying to us even this morning. The scriptures want to grab you by the shoulders, look you in the eye and say, don't you know someone died for your freedom? Blood was shed. The war has been waged. So why do you live as though you're still a slave? Walk out, live out who you are. Become who you are. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is God's work and it's our work. And it's to that end that we rightly toil and strive and train. Let me say the last thing quickly and then we'll be done. Sanctification is God's work, it's our work, and it's gradual but inevitable work. It's gradual. You got saved and you were changed. In the end, Jesus will come and in a moment you'll be like he is. And in between these two moments is a lifetime of day after day after day, slow but steady change. By the grace of God, you are not what you were 10 years ago. By the grace of God, you will not be who you are now 10 years from now. God is at work. That's how it happens. If you belong to Christ, it's gradual. It's like how your child grows. No one's going to be able to stare at their child and go, there, I saw it, she grew. Right? That's not how it works. And yet after a measure of time, that child doesn't look like it looked four months ago or six years ago or 20 years ago. It's gradual, but it's inevitable. If the Holy Spirit is in you, he will accomplish this. Be encouraged as you're despairing over how slow this is going and why you're not changing faster. It's gradual, but it is inevitable work. Let me read you one last verse and then we'll close. This is 1 Timothy 5 verse 23. It says this, now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. So you can be encouraged. He's going to get this done. It's going to be gradual. It's going to be slow. Sometimes you're sprinting. Sometimes you're crawling. It's going to happen. Because from eternity past, he had your sanctification in mind. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He will not stop till he gets it done. Because he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Are there places in your life you need to be toiling and training and striving? Don't neglect that because you're under grace. Are there places in your life where there's a disconnect between who God is and what he is calling from you? If there is, toil, train, strive. And as you're toiling and straining and striving, be greatly encouraged. Because he who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. Toil, strive, and train because this is God's work, our work, gradual but inevitable work. Let's pray together.